I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share real life experiences and the tools they've developed to move forward and live their best life. I'm Michelle Scharf. And I'm Jenny Taylor. And to all of our listeners, this is episode two with our new friend, Jen Zwink. If you have not listened to episode one, stop right now. I don't care what else you're doing. Hit pause. Go back to where you find your podcast and listen to episode one because you're not going to want to miss it. If you did listen, then here's your quick summary to remind you. I I don't think you'll need the reminder because I think it stands out quite a bit. But Jen, thanks for joining us. We're going to recap your story a little. Michelle and I have interviewed a lot of people who've been through a lot of difficulties, challenges, trials, trauma. We've actually interviewed a lot of widows who have buried a spouse. And yet your story stands out as distinct in a lot of ways. For one, your husband... You're both very young at the time of his passing. You said you were 35. He was 36. He died suddenly and didn't just die suddenly, but was killed in a mugging in a New Orleans area. And just by going to a bachelor party and turning the wrong way as he left the party and headed back to the hotel. So as Michelle mentioned a couple of points in episode one, this is all the horrible things a TV docudrama would be made out of. And yet it's not made up. And so we are really grateful that you're willing to share with us your story. We're also really grateful as as we go on with this multi-part series for the great work you're doing. You've got a podcast called 180 Widow, and you've mm-hmm. got the Widow Squad, all the, all the other widows like us that you've brought into the fold and help and find that common ground to stand on. But let's jump back into your story. You were telling us that your your husband was killed. You walked through kind of the police involvement and the investigation Trials scheduled and canceled, scheduled and canceled. You waited four years, it sounds like, until the legal part of this was wrapped up. But let's have you back up to when you lost your husband. You somehow made it through the funeral in shock like the rest of us do. And then what Mm -hmm. are your first steps for you and your then two-year-old daughter, Claire? And again, what year was this? How many years ago already are we? This was October of 2011, so it's it's been several years since this happened. And yet it um, might have been yesterday. Thank you for having me back on here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. To hear you tell the story. It's It's not like it's expired. I know. It's these the trauma of our individual stories and how we can really remember all of those details. and, And yet it's kind of fuzzy too right because you're in yeah. shock with a lot of it you remember certain so, things with clarity and other things it's like no idea yeah, yeah. Like, like pieces of your memory just are lost mm-hmm. I know it's such a weird it's such a weird thing but so yeah I, I just picking up where we had left off before we had the funeral was the week after he was killed and then it was just trying to pick up the pieces of first of all handling all of the the things that we have to do, right? Like the phone calls that we have to make. But also there was the week after. So this was like Halloween weekend, I think it was the 30th, maybe. My mom 
who lives close to us, she had asked me to go and run errands with her one day. And I told her yes, because I I hadn't gone back to work at that time. I wasn't really doing anything. She said, come and meet me at the McDonald's on whatever street. And so this is a really small, little, sleepy town neighborhood. We're about, you know, an hour outside of New Orleans. And I, I went with Claire, and we went to meet my mom for lunch. And so I was we had ordered our food and we were sitting inside and the um, I could hear the people behind the counter kind of starting to talk a little loud. Like the workers were kind of raising their voice a little bit, like something wasn't right. Something was not normal. And my mom had gotten up to go to the bathroom with Claire. We were in the middle of potty training because she was two. And so I was trying to stay on track with that, although that's a whole other story. So I'm sitting there just eating my fries and just, you know, trying to see, like, what is happening behind the counter. And then again, like, voices being raised even more. And I heard one of the people say, oh, he he's running this way. And then all of a sudden, outside the window, right to my right, where I'm sitting in the little booth, this police car comes screeching up to a halt. And the, and the cop jumps out. He's got his gun up in the air. And he runs into the McDonald's, into the bathroom, into the men's bathroom. Now, my mom was in the women's bathroom. And so he comes running out with his gun still up, runs back, jumps in the car, and then screeches away. And I'm just sitting there, like, in slow motion, just eating my fries. Like, what is happening? What is even happening? What happened was I heard the people talking. They said that the bank across the street from the McDonald's had just been robbed. And the person that robbed the bank was running towards the McDonald's to go and hide or whatever. And so the police were looking for this person. And do you feel I, like you're like, am I going to be a, a part yeah. of every crime scene yeah. that happens yeah. from here on out? Like I didn't audition yeah. for this role in this terrible movie. Please get me off the set. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I'm oh, sitting there. Unbelievable. Just, Again, like slow motion, eating my fries. And my mom comes walking out with Claire and she says, guess who just went to potty? Like just all excited because she got her to go to the bathroom (laughs) on the potty. And I was just shaking and in tears. And I just had this horrible breakdown in the McDonald's because I felt like every piece of violent act that was happening in the world was coming crashing down on top of me and I Mm. couldn't breathe. I really just, I, I just had a breakdown. I really did. I had a panic attack. My mom. Truly traumatized. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She took me outside and she was like, okay, you just need to slow, just breathe, just breathe. And I just felt like I, I was being suffocated. I really did. Anyway, I was standing outside with, Claire was playing around. They had a bunch of little butterflies flying around. And she's just like jumping around in the butterflies. And this person in this white minivan, you know how when you order your fries and they're not ready or whatever, you have to pull up a little bit and then they bring them out to you Mm -hmm. at the fast food place. So he pulls up and he's waiting for his food and we're standing in front of the McDonald's, but he's kind of right there, like where we were standing. And he's got his wife in the car and all the kids in the back, like it's just a packed minivan. And his window was down. So I guess he kind of heard us talking and he goes, excuse me, excuse me. And I looked over and he was like, you have a beautiful daughter. And I was like, 
oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm like, he's right. I do. I do. Like, I just had to snap out of it. Like, I really needed that whatever it was, this divine intervention that came came in and just snapped me out of my panic attack because I was like, I do have a beautiful daughter. Like, I do. She's right here. It's okay. I just don't feel safe here. I don't feel safe at all. I left the McDonald's. I went straight home, and I booked us two tickets to go down to um, Turks and Caicos. That's the, oh. an island well. in the Caribbean. <laughs> and I, I was going to go for a week and a half over Thanksgiving. So Thanksgiving was coming up, and I said, there's no way I'm going to even try to pretend that everything is normal. I'm not doing a normal holiday. Nothing is normal, so I'm going to leave. And so we went. I booked that ticket for 10 days, and Claire and I went down there. But my friend also came with me, um, my really good college friend. She dropped everything, and she said, I'll come with you for a week, and you can do whatever you want. Go walk on the beach. Go lay on by the pool. Uh, I'll watch Claire, and you just okay, that's get a great yourself friend. better. Mm-hmm. That's a friend who oh gets gosh. it. Yeah. She came, so she came. We, she met us at the Miami airport, and we all flew down there together. And I spent, you know, the next three or four days just trying to regroup. But by the third day that I was down there, I told her and I felt it in my heart. I said, I feel like I need to be here. I really feel like I want to live here. And she kind of looked at me and she was like, okay. She said, let's see if we can make this happen and if this can work, you know, financially. And she's an She's an engineer. She's super type A. I love her for it because I couldn't think about those things at that time. But she sat down with me, went through all of my finances and said, if you can afford a place that costs this much, you can make this work. Like we can make this work. And I said, okay, you know, she was my, my brain. Um, And we did, we figured it out. And I started to like the third day that I was there, I said, I'm going to, I'm going to start asking around, making some contacts, you know, seeing if, if, there's, if there's anyone that will rent uh, long-term to me so that I can just be here for a year. Now, mind you, I did not know anybody on that island, not a single person, but it was everything that I needed. And I felt like I, I felt like I had missed time with Claire and I did not want to be the mom that, kind of gave up on life you know Mm. um my parents who are just amazing amazing people right after this happened of course they were like come and move in with us we will help take care of you we will take care of claire and they 100 percent would have done that if i would have let them they would have let me curl up in a ball and go sit in a room for however long i needed to you know but i told myself i said i I need to figure this out and I need to figure out how to be a mom in this situation, you know? And so I felt like I couldn't, I didn't want to lean on them as much and me putting myself in this position where I didn't know anybody else. I didn't have anybody else down there. It was going to make me, it was going to make me be a, a mom, you know? And so I, I, went ahead and I found a place and I booked it for January 1st 
and we were going to stay like January to January of 2012. And I came home from that trip and I told my parents that I was going to go down there and I was going to live there for a year. And then my dad was like, and he think a year is, is too long. He's like, maybe six months, maybe, maybe do six months. And I said, no, I'm like, you know, a year is going to go by like that. And I know that I don't want to be here for all of these dates and all of these occasions, like Father's Day, Mother's Day, Valentine's Day. I don't want to be here for any of those normal things that I'm supposed to be experiencing with him. You know, like the first July year first. The first, right. Yeah, 4th Everything. of July was a big thing for us. That mm. was such a big, fun thing that we did at our house. And I said, I, there's no way I'm going to be here for that. I don't want to be here. And I just removed myself from that situation because I knew that I couldn't handle it. And and at the time, you know, we're, we're all trying to figure this out, right? Like, how are we going to react when these things happen to us? What can we control because our life just feels like everything is spiraling out of control. So what can I control? What is going to make me feel better? What is going to bring me comfort? And I knew logically it did not make sense at all for a widow to move with her two-year-old to an island where she doesn't know a single person. But I felt everything in me was telling me that that was where I needed to be. Amazing. quiet. It was quiet. It was peaceful. It was just Claire and I and just, you know, not any other distractions, none of the noise that I was feeling, none of the stress that I was feeling when I was at home. I went down there just to have some peace and solitude and healing and time with her. And it was the best decision that I ever made. And I am so thankful that nobody tried to talk me out of it. <laughs> That's really amazing. It I is mean, the, to give you that space to grieve your way and, yeah. and to not, yeah. to not say it has to look like this or you have to do that. I appreciate that you acknowledge your parents would have let you in um, and loved you and helped you and given you that. And that you recognize that wasn't what the situation called for in your case. And maybe in someone else's case, moving back in with mom and dad was the perfect thing to do. And I think that's right. what Michelle and I continue to learn is there's no prescribed no right way. way. You mm-hmm. have to do it this no. way. Or you should do it that way. I love that you followed your heart yep. and that the people who love you let you do that and, and gave you the space to find that, that healing. Yeah, yeah, I love that. We're going to take a break yeah. and we'll be right back. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear-gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. 
Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. And we're back. It is so amazing, this journey that you've taken. I love that you ended up in Turks and Caicos. That's on my bucket list. It's a destination place I want to go to. Yeah. I never really thought of it as a place of being affordable to actually relocate to. So here you are. There's all kinds of complications with those kind of things as well, right? I mean, like, is Turks and Caicos part of America? I don't think it's... No, it's British. It's British owned, yeah. Yeah. So, so what does that mean as far as passports? passports? And you've got a young one. Yeah. Like, how how did so, that? Were those complications that you had to work out before, or you got there and go, oh, well, maybe I jumped into this a little soon, and now I've got to <laughs> be creative. No, I did learn some things after the fact, but I knew going into it, you do have to leave every three months. Like, you can't yeah. stay in a an extended amount of time. It's three month increments or less. So I would plan it, you know, where we would go, like we went down there for January and then we came back for Easter. I think so. It might've been a little bit before Easter, but right at the three month mark, I would come back to the U S and make a couple of weeks of it and, and, you know, stay at home, see family, see friends. And then we would go back. So So, you kept um, your house. Did you rent it out or? My brother actually stayed, oh. uh, moved into my house to house it. Oh, well, that's, yeah. that's amazing. Nice. So, so that many things just trust. worked out so well for you. So to what? Make this happened. That worked out. So it's yeah. been, what, we're at 12 years this fall. So you've kind of caught us up. You took a year off. You were at this island. You go back. But during this time, there's this four-year investigation going on. So t- kind of bring us up until around that time and what happened. Yeah. Well, we ended up staying in Turks and Caicos for two and a half years. Oh, wow. Close, yeah, closer to three. I w- we were supposed so to come jealous. back after a year, and then I wasn't ready to come back. We ended up staying again. We stayed. And then finally, it got to the point where she was going to be starting kindergarten, and I figured that that was a good, clean start, like just a fresh start for us to come back and for me to figure out what my life was going to look like from from here on out so we stayed a lot longer than i you know was planning on in the beginning yeah (laughs) but um but yeah so so all of this is going on this investigation is going on are they contacting you while while you're there are you glad that you're away because there's really nothing you can do for the investigation anyway right there's wait and worry i mean you weren't even a part of that night or anything so like you're just waiting for the process well i know and yes wait and worry exactly just wait and see what they need me to do how can i help the only thing i was told when i in those initial first years was to not be on facebook uh and to not be on any kind of social media because uh, I wasn't supposed to show any signs of happiness or that I was happy or that Claire was thriving or in any kind of way like that. Um, to make the crime then would, be dismissed that it didn't really bother you or something? Yeah, 
Interesting. The DA told the DA told me she just said they will take any little bit of anything and mm. twist it in the worst possible way. And what a terrible reality, you. That, mm-hmm. you know, to to so, speak to our system. So yeah, so I just I did what they told me to do, and I kept preparing myself. Like I said, I just kept preparing myself for that trial date. When is that going to happen? When is that going to happen? And it it got to the point. Um, this was October of 2015 was when the DA called me out of the blue one day and just said uh, he took the plea deal. Now, this was a plea oh, deal that we had originally. Four years to get to a plea deal? Yep. Oh, my and gosh. We and we had originally presented this plea deal since, like, day one. And so, yeah, he took the plea deal. What was your reaction to that? Was there like a wave of of relief or closure or was it fury that four years had been dragged through a mixture of all of it? Honestly, okay, yeah, it was kind of it was kind of all of it. I felt relief that I did not have to go through a trial because that was just hanging on my head. Just like I don't know if I can make it through this. I mean, I, I feel like I am a strong person and to a certain extent. But, um, you know, the other thing that she told me was for, for the plea deal, you can go in and you can make a statement to the person. Now the DA warned me ahead of time. She said, he's going to go in, he's going to see the judge. If you want to go in and you want to say something to him, you can, but she said, I'm warning you now. He has no remorse. He shows zero zero remorse. She's like, he will likely smirk at you. He might laugh at you. He might, you know, make a face or whatever with whatever you say. And she's like, I, you're telling us all of this. What was the plea deal? Like that would make me so angry. Yeah. It was second degree murder. So he was first. And, and this is the other thing that I learned because I don't know these things, right, as a normal person. Right. But that with second-degree murder, it can be anywhere from 15 years to 40 years. And 15 years um, like is not years. 15 years. They could get yeah. off for good yeah. behavior. They could get out early they release. Could count they could count served in t- four years. Exactly. To argue about he it. already... Yeah, he had already spent, you know, four years in there. So then that would have been 11 years that he would have been total. You know, like that's that's what we were looking at. Now, the judge, and I think in that four-year time span, they had several different judges, you know, that had come in. But the, the judge that was at that particular time ended up giving him the, the full 40 years. Good. So, oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. Which, of course, so, is probably 20, plus he served four already, so then he's yeah. already at 15. Yeah. Is he, I, was he young? Was he younger than your husband? Yes. Was Oh. He's uh, 18. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So what are your, what are um, your next steps? I mean, I'm, I'm picturing you, you're in your 30s, early 40, you've got this little two-year-old that's probably, you know, now six, like you said, starting school. You finally at least get the process over with. I'm, I'm using air quotes for over. Yeah. Um, then you are a strong person. You are a resilient person. You're you're able to move forward and and keep living a beautiful life. How do you pick the pieces up after the judge sends a guy off to jail? And I guess we 
don't keep thinking there's a calendar date for a possible trial. Like what happens next in your in your mindset and in your movement forward? Well, it was a really interesting and weird thing that happened in that exact week, in that one week time frame when he took the plea deal, because I had um, just, I guess, reconnected or met my now husband hmm. in that time. And it's it's kind of another long part of the story, but I can I can if you guys want to edit this out, it's fine. Um, but how I met my now husband Doug. So I had sold my house, and I did end up moving in with my parents after I came back from Turks and Caicos, and I had been searching for a little house for us to live in. I wasn't sure exactly where I wanted to be. I just knew I wanted to be close to them and close to family. And in the process of selling my house, I had packed up, you know, two storage units. I think I even had three storage units full of stuff, moved in with my parents. And my mom happened to be going through one of my boxes of things. She was helping me organize. And one of these boxes had bills in it from my old house, from you know, uh, insurance bills and, and student loan things, just things like that. And she's going through all of these papers and she found this little folded up note that said Jennifer and it had a little heart over the eye. And so she said, this doesn't look like it goes here. So she took it out and she put it on my dresser in our little apartment place that we were staying in with my parents. And I had come home from something and was cleaning up and I ended up finding this folded up letter that was on my dresser and I picked it up and I opened it up and it was this five page love letter. And I remember getting that letter when I was in high school. Mm. Um, I remember reading the letter Mm. and (laughs) what happened was (laughs) Doug and I, Doug and I had met, uh, he was in his church youth group and I was in my church youth group. And this was in 19, So this was a very long time ago, but we were both in high school and we had this one weekend where it was a church youth gathering thing and his church group came in the Superdome. They had a big concert in the Superdome. I came in the aisle one way and he came in the other aisle the other way. And we met on the very first night of this youth conference thing. Mm. And back in 1993, we spent three days together. At this conference, it was totally innocent. We were we were kids. Just teenagers. We were just yeah. silly. Mm-hmm. Yes. And he got back on the plane to go to Michigan that from that trip, and he wrote me this love letter. And then he he mailed it to me because there wasn't any other way to get in touch right. with each other. But he <laughs> That's how we communicated. <laughs> yes. And so I had this letter, and it said, you know, I never believed in love at first sight, but blah, blah, blah. Like he was just going on and on and on. And at the end of the letter, he said, this is my church. This is my high school. This is where I'm going to college. This is where I live. This is my phone number. Like give me all this information. And he signed it, Doug Wink. So I had his full name on this letter. Kept that letter. I kept that letter. And I, I had it in a box of probably like high school stuff. I have no idea how it got where it did. But in that box of bills, my mom had found it and she put it on my dresser 
And I opened it up that day and I said, oh, my gosh. I said, I remember getting this letter. I'm like, somebody loves me, you know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I looked him up on Facebook. (laughs) <laughs> and I found him on Facebook, and there was nothing. Ab- me? There was nothing about him. He had like a picture of you know Michigan Stadium or whatever. It was nothing about him at all. And I ended up messaging him, and I said, "Hey, I found this letter. You probably don't remember coming down here to Louisiana, but you came down here, and I have a love letter from you." <laughs> and he wrote back to me right away. He got back. He messaged me and said, "I absolutely remember you, Jen." So he he asked for my number. We started texting. This all happened. I found that letter, got in touch with him all in that same week that of the, plea the plea deal happened. Wow. Amazing. So I started talking to Doug on Monday. The plea deal happened on Wednesday. And wow. then I, re- I remember just struggling those couple of days, the Wednesday, Thursday, you know, I, I remember dropping off Claire at school on Friday and dropping her off in the car line and just pulling away and crying. And I, I just pulled over and got into the, into the parking lot and just cried. And Doug texts me and he's texting me saying, EGIF, you know, Hey, happy Friday. And I'm, he has no idea. He has no idea what I'm going through at that time because I had just started talking to him that week. So he's new coming into my life and I have all this drama and stuff happening <laughs> that of course I didn't tell him. You're about like, Hey, right I got to fill you in on a few things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> we got to catch up. Exactly. Wow. Can you exactly. believe that? That is so, unbelievable. I love that story. I love I was that like, story. Thank God for texting, right? Like yeah. he doesn't have to see me. I'm like, I can just text, and I, I did. I texted him right away. I was crying in my car in the parking lot, and I texted him back, "TGIF, happy face, happy face." Yeah, you know, I'm like, Which is exactly thank what we God do. Yeah. he doesn't have to talk to me right now. I'm a mess. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's but, such a beautiful story. So, do you so, have kids? Yes. So we ended up. We got together a couple months later, finally in person. He was living in Chicago, and I was in Louisiana. So I had a date with him in Chicago. I had to tell my parents that. I said, can you please watch Claire so I can go and go out on a date in Chicago? <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, I, I flew up there. We spent the weekend together, and it was great. And then um, we just we really just hit it off. It was like no time had gone by. It was crazy. And... 10 months later, we were engaged, and then 10 months later, we got married, and 10 months later, we had Penelope. So we have oh, a, a, so little, sweet. a little baby girl together who is, man, she is just something else. Well, she, yeah, she's Claire four, and almost Penelope. five now. Oh, yeah. that's so awesome. What it's a great a crazy, story. Yeah. Well, how, you know, I'm thinking about spins. this, too. A funny enough story, before I met John, my high school boyfriend was Doug. So oh, I'm like, look at all these small you know, your name's Jen, your husband was Brent, Did, Jenny and Brent. And it's like, there's Did all the, your... these little lines in between all three of us, but it's fun. So funny. He, <laughs> it's kind of interesting because it's like you had this life experience and you have clear because of that experience. And yet somehow you come back around and 
And you're, you're now with this guy that probably, if if you had met him first, you wouldn't have had these other experiences. But then Claire wouldn't be here, you know? No, I it's know. It's so crazy. We need to take a break, and we're going to be right back. back i'm just so happy to know that you've been able to pick up move forward not on yeah that you have another little beautiful girl so penelope's about five now and what does that make uh claire she's 12 or 13 14 14 14 yeah i can't do math when i'm on the air she's my son's she's my son's age all right, so let's let's talk. We've got a few more minutes to kind of wrap up the personal side of your journey, and then, of course, we'll come back again and look at your 180 widow and the widow squad. But what what's life look like with you and Doug and the girls now, and how does resilience play into life even a dozen years after you became a widow? Because I think Michelle and I have talked about this yeah. before. Do you just hang up your widow hat because now you've found love again? Is it like it never happened and you've moved on? Walk us through maybe the the ongoing resilience piece, not the initial grief and shock, but it's been a dozen years for you. What does that continue to look like, and how do you continue to strengthen yourself and your family in this new relationship? Yeah, there's a lot involved in getting into a new relationship and then continuing the relationship that you still have with your late Mm -hmm. husband. Yep. Because I feel like it all, it just, it, it doesn't end. It does not end. I've heard um, that before. I went to a widow's camp the year after my husband died. And I, I, I was most surprised by that segment that I attended. And, and they said, you know, a lot of people will start dating again, thinking that this will end their grief, but it doesn't work that way. And then they had a lot of speakers come up and talk about that. And I was like, oh, okay, well, then I guess I don't want to date because that's exactly what <laughs> I was thinking. There's no magic button to just erase it. Yeah. Can I ask really quickly, was Doug was Doug ever married yeah. or had children before? Or was he? He was, ma- he was married and divorced, but no children. Okay. okay. So, so you both found yeah. each other kind of after a few twists and turns. So what is it yeah. like? So I've had experiences with my husband. I shared a little bit with you I I think personally but not on air anywhere but I had an experience where I was dating someone my husband came to me and said Michelle it's time to let this person go and I often think like "Mm, are you going to be in my relationship if I ever do find one like how does this relationship evolve and at the same time my husband was I was married 32 years he four of our children three of our grandkids like I I'm never going to not have him be a part of my life because he's a part of my grandkids and and my kids. And and it's important to keep his memory alive. So how how does it work? Give me some insights. It's very complex and it takes both parties to really understand the other person in that like with Doug stepping into what he came into and all of the baggage involved, you know, he said all the right things and he understands things in 
a way that I guess a lot of people don't because I hear these stories too with all of the mm-hmm. women that I talk to, with all the widows that I talk to, that it takes a certain person to come into that picture and kind of just be okay with where they are and what they bring into your life and what this other person brought into your life because yeah. these are they are completely different people. Mm-hmm. You know, Brent is completely different from from Doug personality wise. I mean, they are just kind of night and day, but I mean, I love them both for who they are, you know, for what I had and have with each of them and individually i love them for their individual reasons you know Mm -hmm. um and and not any more one so than the other it's just it's the way that they make you feel Mm -hmm. you know Uh, you're with somebody because of the the way that they make you feel does this person lift you up do do they make you happy do they bring you joy do they put you first you know brent did that and doug does that yeah i think it's interesting uh, because i mean i've dated a lot a lot, a lot. And, you know, the interesting experience that I've had is that I will actually have men say to me, um, I'm not really interested in in having to compete with a dead man. Or oh, um, I think... Um, so ridiculous. Right? Exactly. And But to me, what they don't understand yeah. that I'm hearing is like, well, then you're just clearly not my person because... Right. I have the capacity to love at such an immense level that the man who ends up with me is going to be the luckiest man on earth. And yeah. I know that 100% and John will always be a part of who yep. you are. It's yeah. like if you're at chapter 10 or 62 or whatever in a book, you don't erase the previous chapters. That's what's developed the character you have become. That's right. The good and the bad right. with John. That's, exactly. That's now who Michelle is like. Jen, you said Doug and Brent are different people. I would argue that the you that first met Brent is different than the you that f- the second time met Doug. And, and fell in love with Doug because yeah. life mm. morphs us. Yeah. We evolve and, right. and hopefully in good ways, you know, hopefully right. we become better and, and more complete yeah. in ourselves. But the 23-year-old me that met Brent Taylor in college is not the same woman that I am today. Yeah. And um, there's something right. to be said about that. and. And I love how you've been able to make it work. Yeah. Yeah. And loss itself. So there's the life growth with that person, right? But then there's the loss and that loss changes. Like I am not the same person. I have five tattoos on my body. My husband hated tattoos. I would have never gotten a tattoo (laughs) just out of sheer respect for how horrific my husband viewed tattoos. I don't even actually know why I got one. It was totally a grief thing. But then once I started, I wasn't going to stop. So, like, I'm not that same girl, right? Like, if he was to come back, he'd be like, why did you get the tattoos? I know. You weren't here to stop me, honey. Exactly. But at the same time, I love, Jen, I love what you're talking about, that you can love both of them. And it's not that you loved one more or less or better or more worse. I joke all the time. If if I ever remarry again, someone's going to marry me and Brent. And my seven kids yeah. and those memories and yeah. and to a degree, the extended yeah. family. And we're all individuals. And in America, we try so hard to be so individualistic, but really we're a whole and we're part of a whole. And, mm-hmm. and Brent Taylor will forever be part of the whole person I am. Yep. And, right. and maybe there's yeah. room for someone else to also be a part of that whole and the whole just gets bigger. I will say, it's I think it takes effort and resilience and perspective and all kinds of 
all work. kinds of growth on the man's <laughs> Maybe side. Maybe just work. And, and on the man's side too, right? True. So for me, exactly. when I'm here, to not feel competitive. Yeah. To not feel competitive, to not be insecure about who he is, to understand right. point. that I can love him wholly, completely, in every way, and that doesn't diminish the love mm-hmm. that I had for John, and also it doesn't mean that there is less for him. Right. And so like, I'm I'm looking for a unicorn, but then again, I am a unicorn. So it's like, (laughs) you you know, it's okay. (laughs) It's all right. It might be a unicorn on the top of your next wedding. (laughs) (laughs) There are those guys out there though. They are out there. You just, you hear a lot of the ones that are not capable of, Understand the horror that, stories you know? that make you just want to remain unremarried. But but there are good ones out there. Yeah. I'm I'm so happy to hear that you found one. And and how are the girls? How's how's the family overall? I imagine those girls oh, are goodness. learning resilience too. Mm-hmm. Coming into a family yes. situation like that, like it or not, they probably have a leg up, maybe on some of their peers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Claire. Claire is like a little mama in herself. Like she's just. Penelope is her baby, and there's a nine-year difference between the two, so it's it's a pretty big age difference, and she just loves on her like she's there's there's no fighting in my house, and I, I hate mm-hmm. to even say that and announce that to the world, but I'm telling you, like the girls, they get along so well. The the thing that they argue about is, you know, mommy, she won't hug me, mommy, she she won't. I'm trying to kiss her, and she won't. <laughs> that is the argument. Mommy, I love her too house. much. I cannot complain. Yeah, that's oh, I love yeah. that little love bugs. But, I love it. Yeah, the two girls—they just they get along so great. And you know, there's certain things with with the kids that certain ages where I know like Claire's going to be more curious about details and things like that. Yeah. And I just kind of I take it as it comes. As it comes, you know, Penelope is just getting to the age where she's. She asked me, actually, she asked me the other day, she said something like, so Claire has a daddy. Like she was trying to figure it out. You know, you can see the little Um, wheels turning in her head. Claire has a, Claire has a daddy. That's not daddy. I think she said something like that. And, and I was like, yeah, you know, um, her Claire's daddy is in heaven and it's hard to say those things. Like it's so hard to talk about it down at her level. Right. It's, it hurts, you know? It hurts, but at the same time, just trying to be as honest with everybody across the board right. and not keep not keep anything from anybody. So I just have yeah. to tell like her you said, take at it as her it level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's beautiful. This has been um, incredible. I mean, it's been jaw dropping. It's been tear jerking. It's been like, wait, stop. I can't believe that actually happened. It's been informational. It's, it's been very it's been very helpful and yeah. we're really grateful that you would share so much of your journey with us and with our listeners. Wow. And we're really excited that we're gonna have kind of a mini episode also where you tell us about your widow journey in the, the podcast yeah. world and connecting with other widows because whether you're a widow listening or not, if you're listening you've probably known some widows or you're associated with widows or just people who've been through grief of Mm -hmm. any variety. And I think a lot of us know that part of the healing that is really helpful is finding that community Mm -hmm. and what that community looks like. So if you're listening, stay tuned because Jen is coming back and she's going to talk about her podcast work and her widow squad community. And also, if you're listening, we hope that you would consider sharing your journey with resilience with us and with our listeners. 
We're always looking for people who are willing to open up and share whatever that journey looks like. There's no two journeys alike, but we've all had the opportunity to go up and down and hopefully come out stronger because of it. So if you have a story you're willing to share with us, you can email us at rrpodcast at ksl.com, or you can find us on Facebook at Relentlessly Resilient or Instagram at Relentlessly Resilient Podcast. And a special shout out to our great producer, Kellyanne Halverson. She does a great job editing and managing our time on the show. On task. Which is like (laughs) a pretty monumental task, really, to be honest. Bless your heart. Remember, whatever you do today, remember to be kind. You have no idea the struggles others are dealing with in their lives. Go out and have a great day. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new season three, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold season three, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts.